Cramsval Caffeinated contains graphic and explicit content that may not be suitable to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I wanted to make I wanted to make hot chocolate a while ago. I thought you thought Ovaltine. Yeah, it's a good source of twelve vitamins and minerals. Because, <laughs> like, my grandfather used to bring it and be like, oh, look, it's Ovaltine. And I'm like, no, Grandpa, like, that does not taste good. And so I was feeling nostalgic. Mm. No, I get that. I get that. I had some, like, tapioca the other day. And, like, that felt very nostalgic for me. Except for, like, my parents used to make it on the stovetop, like, with, like, dried tapioca. And, oh, God, it was so freaking good. Okay, you want to call me an old lady? It's so good. Fine. Okay, but we, like, we both can admit, like, we're, we are older than we actually look. We're both old people. Yes, except for you're more of, like, a, like rebel older lady to party and then drink tea at the end of the night and I'm just like let's go to bed that sounds about right yeah my coffee is ready okay you officially ready ready I'm officially ready ready it's your dream coming through yay and I get to check this resolution off my my 2020 uh resolution Resolution. list hell yeah Hell yeah! Okay, so welcome to, like, the two people who are listening to this um, in the future. I'm sure it'll just be, like, Crystal and Becca. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so welcome to Crimes While Caffeinated. Um, I'm Marissa. Woo! I'm Marissa. I'm Abby. And um, kind of to, like, introduce ourselves, um, Abby and I have been friends for six years now. Yep. Isn't that weird? All the way back to freshman year of college. Yes, yes. Um, And now we're old and we're out of college and we have nothing better to do with our lives. So we're doing this. (laughs) I would say speak for yourself, but like right nail on the head. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually very accurate. Yeah, I would very say. very accurate. That our first meeting was Cards Against Humanity. We a whole bunch of people were playing it in like the sixth floor or third floor lounge of the building that Abby lived in. All joined and started to play, and it's been chemistry ever since. No, I think the first time that we met, you bought me pizza. No, that was the first time that we hung out. Okay. Yeah. The first time we met was that day. Large group of people. And then we had gone to a field hockey game. Oh, yes. Yes. And Abby was like... Oh, yeah, since we've been talking for a few hours, I guess I can let you guys know that I have a car. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> because, like, no one had, like, a car on campus. And yes. Abby. And I did. <laughs> did. 
And we were in the middle of a city that, like, you could not walk around in, so. Yeah. And I'm originally from Mass. I am originally from Maine. But we both live in completely different places now, so I live in New Hampshire. And I live in New York City. Yes, because she's a, she's a bougie girl. So one thing that we immediately, I'd say, like, connected on was that you and I both love true crime, paranormal, you love conspiracy theories especially. Yes. There was, like, a week of time you and I just sat all these true crime documentaries and she introduced me to podcasts like my favorite murder and that's why we drink yeah that's that's just how our our passion our true passion got started <laughs> ever since conversations with each other of, oh my god did you hear this crazy shit us post like articles that we found yeah sending each other random articles Sending each other text messages like, did you hear about this thing or did you hear about this thing? Like a couple of weeks ago, I said that truck that found in like Ireland. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I didn't hear about that. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It like was just posted. I have to tell Abby. So that was insane. So we'd like to get started. Should we share what kind of coffee we're drinking? Oh, yes. Sorry. I, you know, I even told myself that I was supposed to say that and then didn't yep. say that. So what kind of coffee are you drinking? I am drinking, it's called, oh, sorry. It's called Orange Daily Roast. So I do this, um, I do this coffee subscription service called Trade. And every like month or whatever, they send you a new bag of coffee. Hashtag and not sponsored. Not not fun. And I, so I've been doing doing this, and because I want to like try different like types of coffee or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the the type of coffee that I'm drinking is called Orange Daily Roast, and the the type thing it is is called Two Bridges, and it is described as a bright and lively blend, pays tribute to our gleaming home city, but you can brew it anywhere. I think they're from New York. <laughs> I or maybe def- not. I don't know. No, you're good. But I definitely should have gone first because mine is nowhere close to yours. <laughs> <laughs> you you just sounded like so professional and I'm over here like um I have a French uh a French vanilla K cup that a student was moving out and didn't want any of their K-cups anymore, so, so, so you dead ass, like, K-cups. honestly, yeah, I have free K-cups, that's it's- better than mine, because <laughs> I had to pay for my coffee, so, so, mine is Boston's Best Coffee Roasters, uh, it's BPA free, <laughs> okay, and it says artfully flavored gourmet coffee, sure, um, and then the creamer I have in is the um, Starbucks pumpkin spice because I'm still a bougie basic bitch girl over here. Uh, so, yeah. And I have it in my cute little Starbucks uh, Christmas reusable cup. Oh, um, I have my coffee in a mug that has an alpaca on it that says... 
I'll pack a lunch. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So for listeners, like Abby is obsessed with alpacas, like to the point where I think two years in a row, Abby went to the alpaca convention yes. and, and, and does not open to normal people. <laughs> I think it was three years in a row that I went. Anyway, well, maybe two years, but yeah, yeah, but every day that it was open, and um, (laughs) so yeah, so just get used to like alpaca puns. I'm sure from Abby over there with the cute little hugs, Ah, so adorbs. You know, the problem I get into is like I'll like be at a store and I'll see like something that looks like an alpaca that like I'll want to send to you and then I realize that it's a llama and that you'll freak the fuck out I've gotten a little bit more um tolerant of llamas because of really? the fact that because of the fact that they're more popular now in like stores and products merchandise and stuff so I will accept llama related things um <laughs> as long as they are more so resembling alpacas than llamas and yeah exactly if it says the word llama on it no I'm not down but if it's it's like and you're like it could be both exactly even though you know like the distinctive features that separate the two exactly and (laughs) alpacas are way cuter so they are way cuter I do have to say though so you know this is January and for December, I had knitted my mom this, like, white um, infinity scarf. And I was working so hard on it. But one thing that pissed me off so much was that I didn't realize that I had gotten yarn that was, like, a percentage alpaca. And it shedded everywhere through my apartment. I'm, like, I'm still finding, like, little fluff balls places because okay, the way like that that's my dream come true I know I did it by accident I have some leftover so I'm sure I'll just knit you a pink one and send it to you oh my god make me a little something I don't I know what I will I will. I will I promise I promise okay so do you want to go first or do you want me to go first well I was thinking that we could base it off of um, whoever's is less of a bummer will go last. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so on a scale is of... Is yours like a major head. bummer? No. Okay, neither is mine. Mine's kind of like a... But mine kind of gets into like some conspiracy type things and some... It's really it's really interesting. It, okay. Well, it's not really a conspiracy, but it's more like interesting okay I think I'll go first then okay so I was originally going to do one story and the story that I do is the story I was going to do but literally like an hour ago I had like stumbled upon like the Facebook page of this person and oh like oh god this is too soon and I like don't want to like offend anybody um especially because it's the first episode, and the gentleman died, like, two years ago. So, it's oh still God, kind I, of... Wait, I was originally going to do a story, um, uh, also, that was, that I was, like, this is actually way too, like, 
reasons and, and way too like depressing to yeah. talk about. Uh-huh. Because initially the one that I was gonna do was like this domestic violence thing. Oh jeez. <laughs> yeah. But so this guy like beheaded his wife and then I was like, you know, oh, this might be too much of a downer. Yeah, just a little life. bit. Yeah, for our like first one. But you know, re-listening to um and that's why we drinks first episode, uh they did Jonestown. So <laughs> Okay. I mean, uh, my case is of Clark Rockefeller. Clark Rockefeller? Yeah. Are you aware of this? Um, I'm somewhat aware of the Rockefellers. Like, okay, but like the story of Clark Rockefeller. Uh, like that he was like a con man or something? Yeah. So we'll kind of like dive into it. But so um, I have like a personal story that goes with this. So I like met Clark Rockefeller. Oh, yes, yes. I remember you telling me this story. Yes, yes. Okay, so I'll like share like the part that like I know of at the end. But um, so I'm going to I'll start it off. Clark Rockefeller. So this all kind of starts on a late July sunny Sunday. And I believe that it was back in 2007. Mm-hmm. Clark Rockefeller and his seven-year-old daughter, um, she was named Rain Starro Mills Boss. Like, that was her full name. Um, that's, a, that's a horrible name. Can yeah. I Rain Star? Rain Starro Mills Boss. Like, her, last, her mom's last name was Boss. That's um, horrible. Yeah. So I feel sorry um, for her name. Yes. So they nicknamed her Snooks. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, call, so I would be like, just call me Rain, like whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it's not spelt like R A I N. It's like like Rain, like a queen. Ooh. Oh, oh, that that is even worse. <laughs> The um, information that you're telling me just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah, I know. Anyway, well, it gets worse for her, so we'll see. Um, oh. So Clark Rockefeller was, like, living in the Boston area. So her name was Sandra Boss. Um, they had been married, living in Boston, in a $2.7 million four-story ivy-covered townhouse near Beacon Hill. Casual. Yeah, casual. just casual. Um So that was until they divorced, um, and due to this, uh, Sandra got custody of the daughter, the house in Boston, and the second house in New Hampshire. In the part of, like, winning custody with the daughter, um, they also were planning on moving to London, England. Clark was restricted to only three eight-hour visits a year um, with his daughter, and it had to be accompanied by a social worker. Wait, why? Um, Was he, like, So it, it kind of didn't really explain in detail what... This also, uh, a lot of my information uh, came from, like, the Vogue story. Um, I get your sources. Yes, it didn't go into detail about, like, what he did or whatnot. So they were in Boston on this day. Um, Clark was with Snooks. Uh, <laughs> and on this day... They had a limousine that was supposed to take them to Rhode Island. 
because Rockefeller was supposed to be uh, having a lunch date with a senator's son. And um, he told the limousine driver that um, he had a friend that was, like, really clingy that he wanted to um, shake off. And the limousine driver was like, yeah, absolutely. No one's getting in the car without my consent. Also, because Rockefeller was paying him $3,000. So there's that. Just to take him to a meeting? In Newport, Rhode Island. So, you know, it's a little bit of a drive. The quote that I have from the article is, Suddenly, Rockefeller pushed his pursuer away, put his daughter down, yanked the door open, and pulled the child into the limo so fast that the daughter hit her head on the door frame. He shouted, go, 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 and the driver stepped on the gas, dragging the social worker who had was holding on to the back door handle several yards before he let go and fell to the pavement. So after this had occurred, um, within a few minutes of driving, Rockefeller had asked um, the limo driver if he could pull over so he could hail a cab um, in order to take his daughter to Mass General to check out the bump on her head to make sure it wasn't bad. So he had told the limo driver, like, go sit in the parking lot um, of Mass General I'll be out. Um, But the driver waited two hours and Rockefeller never showed back up. Instead, Rockefeller had taken the taxi to the sailing center in Boston, um, where Rockefeller already had a friend waiting for him um, who had agreed to drive him to New York. So I was like, oh, perfect. You know, Boston to New Hampshire, like little tags and then they have to go to New York where you're at. So there you go. So he had told uh, the driver that, um, like his friend, like, oh, like you really need to drive quickly because we have a eight o'clock uh, train um, at Grand Central Station that we're going to miss if like you don't get there fast enough. So they arrived in Manhattan, got stuck in traffic near the Grand near Grand Central, and so Rockefeller quickly uh, picked up his daughter, threw the money on the front seat, and hopped out without saying goodbye. Um, soon after this, um, that friend who had driven him to the train station had had another friend call her about the Amber Alert that had gone out for Snooks that she had been kidnapped by her father and the driver realized that she had been duped. Back in Boston, Rockefeller's ex-wife, Sandra Boss, was informed that her ex-husband had taken her daughter. The same time, the Boston police were trying to enter in Rockefeller's name into the national database, and guess what? Didn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> so I remember this story now. Yeah, so there's no name. So the officer, like, turned to the wife and was like, oh, like, what's his driver's license? She's like, he doesn't have a driver's license. Um, They were like, okay, like, what's his social security number? She goes, he doesn't have, or I don't have that. And then they were like, well, isn't he on your tax returns? And she goes, no, he's not on my tax returns. His credit cards were under her name, not his own name. His cell phone number was under a friend which I feel like should have been like bright red flags all of these things should have been bright red exactly because you're sitting there like, like honey I just don't know what my social security number is can we just like put everything in your name exactly so I'm sitting there like 
Okay, but also it's like, where is he getting his money from? So 24 hours after his disappearance, they had special agent Noreen Glenson took over the case, which I was like, bomb-ass woman, whoop whoop. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Special agent Glenson decided to call the Rockefeller family and was confirmed that there is no such connection between this person and that family. Clark had also really done a good job of planning out this whole like escape because every single person he talked to he had told them like a different place he was going so he told one friend he was sailing to Peru another friend that he was going to Alaska so like they had no idea where this guy is they have no idea who this guy is and so uh Glenson had said uh quoted it was fascinating We would start going down one avenue, one lead, and we would get to the end of it and nothing would be there. Um, So, like, they were really struggling. Coincidentally, uh, the piece of information that led the FBI to finding out who Rockefeller really was, was a wine glass. Which I thought was really interesting. A wine glass? Yeah. So, the night before Rockefeller had fled, he had gone to a friend's house and had drank a glass of wine and by the time that the investigators had gotten to that person's house, they hadn't washed their dishes. So the glass still had the fingerprints on it and the DNA, which I was like, oh, so it is good that I don't do my dishes. <laughs> but no one's coming <laughs> over. If, so. if you ever get kidnapped, yeah, exactly. find you. Right? So they lifted the fingerprints off of the wine glass and sent them to Quantico to be analyzed. And so while they were waiting for the results to come back, they had released the pictures to the media. And they had gotten all of these tips from people of these different aliases. Some people knew him as Chris Gerhart of the University of Wisconsin. Some knew him as Christopher uh, Chichester or Churster. I don't know who was supposedly a descendant of British royalty, which, like, yo, me too. Uh, (laughs) While he was under these identities, he had charmed, like, a whole bunch of people in Los Angeles, in the suburbs around the 80s, was living there for a bit before he vanished after a California couple had been possibly murdered. The FBI is sitting there, and they're like, Oh my God. Here with someone who's kidnapped a child, their own daughter, and is also suspected of murdering people. One big yikes. Yeah, big yikes. Especially because, as, as like we know, testimony, psychology, other articles and resources, that typically it doesn't end up well when a family member kidnaps um, a child, especially a divorce. Because a lot of times the mentality is, I can't have this kid, then my ex-wife can't have her. It usually ends up in harm of the child or the person who's kidnapped. When the results came back of the DNA, they had found that his name was Christian Carl, and then a very long, complicated last name. Gerhard Strider. I'm going to call him Christian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was uh, 47 years old and he was originally a German immigrant who came to America as a student in 1978. Had completely disappeared off the face of the planet. That the Boston District Attorney called the longest con I've ever seen in my professional career is what. Also, like, it's such an elaborate 
Khan, too, because he went under so many different aliases. Yep. Mm-hmm. And did so many different things. Like, it, this guy must have been exhausted by the end. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, for sure. I definitely feel like at a certain point, like, you either you're brilliant and can, like, separate all these, like, different identities, or you truly have no idea who you are anymore. Yeah, like, you don't even know what the truth is anymore because you've been lying to everybody for so long that you start to believe your own lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking this, too. I was like, well, how did they legally get married, then, if he didn't have a real name? So it turns out that Sandra Boss and Clark had had a Quaker ceremony, so it was technically not legal. Ah, so they weren't actually legally married. Did he tell her that, like, oh, I'm Quaker, and that's why we have oh, to get no, married? Oh, no, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, he seems like he must have been really charming to even, like, convince people that he was a Rockefeller. So I'm thinking, like, he was just really good at, like, manipulating because, you know, you kind of have to be at that point. Yeah. So he was probably like, oh, let's run away right now and get married. And the only place that they could get married was Quaker. I don't know. That's just such a bizarre, like, detail, such a bizarre thing. Yeah. Like, I I feel like he must have told her that he was, like, a Quaker or came from a family of Quakers so he wanted to have a Quaker wedding yeah so it says um and this is uh from Wikipedia (laughs) so uh boss later testified that um Clark I'm gonna call him Clark uh boss later (laughs) I like can't pick what name to call him um Clark we'll call him Clark even though his name's Christian Boss later testified that Clark was charming and that she was she believed the stories he told her at the beginning of their relationship. Later, however, he became emotionally abusive. There you go. Mm. Um, there was a lot of anger and yelling in their household. Although mm. Boss earned all of the family income, so there you go. Which at oh, that point so I would have been did... like, fuck him. So he didn't even work? No, he didn't even work. He was just like a socialite. Oh god. So She testified that Clark held complete control of the family's finances and other aspects of her day-to-day life. Love that. Yeah. I I don't have the experience of, like, being in a relationship like that. I'm sure it's extremely hard to get out of, especially when someone's controlling your finances and aspects of day-to-day life. But if you're making that money, like, fuck off. Like, dude, really? Yeah. Like, that's your money. That's your money, not... Yeah, that's your money. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, But I also know that there's several other people who, um, like, famous cases that that's also happened with as well. Isn't that what the staircase... uh, That guy? Remember the the staircase? The guy, like, the the wife was making all the money because he doesn't have a job anymore. Yeah. Towards the end of their relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was also thinking um, the one where the, like, he had killed the wife, the his two sons on a camping trip at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, she was making the, all the money. The, the body was, like, in the back of the car when he was, like, taking the sons. I believe so. 
Um, yeah. And then um, he had uh, killed himself and the kids. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I'm totally blanking on the name, though. No, I don't remember the name either. But the, the Syracuse guy, I remember, like, his wife mm-hmm. was making, like, a lot of money. And he was in, like, severe debt. Well, wasn't he an author? he was the breadwinner, he took out a life insurance policy on her that was, like, millions of dollars or something. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Another red flag. He was, like, a real estate agent or something. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry, keep going. So after their divorce, Boss had learned that uh, he had told their accountant that he was her brother. Oh. So that the accountant would only file it as a single tax return under her name and that that accountant must have been like this is really this is a really uh close brother sister relationship yeah exactly okay so boss hired a private investigator in 2006 and discovered that clark was not who he claimed to be dun 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 so she clearly i so he she clearly took his visitation rights away from him because she was like, I married this fucking crazy person that I don't even know who he was. After that, she legally changed the couple's daughter's name to Boss. So that's why she has that like long name. And well, um, that's not why she has the long name. That's why well, she okay, has the name. Call me out the of my long shit. name came from <laughs> one of them being a psychopath. Which is definitely him. Yes. <laughs> he was definitely like, let's name her Rain. Let's spell it like royalty and like give her eight middle names. Yes, yes. Okay. But like the poor girl's like 18, 19 years old now. So like, let's leave her be. She's got enough shit. Right. She's got to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Boss had testified in June 2009 at his trial that Clark had agreed to give her custody of the daughter following the divorce. So he got to see her three times a year with the daughter in return for $800,000, as well as two cars, her engagement ring, and a dress that he had given her. All right. So there's that. Um, okay, so <laughs> what was he charged for? So they ended up, when he kidnapped her, they ended up finding them a week later in Baltimore, Maryland. So they made it all the way down there, like driving, like hopping in different cars and so on and so forth. Okay, so he had been charged with, from the kidnapping, um, custodial kidnapping, assault and battery, um, and assault with a deadly weapon. And the deadly weapon was the limo in this case, Whoa. which I thought was interesting. Um, so he was apprehended on August 2nd in 2008 um, after the week-long search. He had purchased an apartment for $450,000 in Maryland. First off, why? Second <laughs> off, oh, well, I guess you'd have to buy the apartment in cash, right? Because you can't legally sign without all of that information. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, you'd have to be pre-approved. I don't know. This is just so complex that it kind of blows my mind a little bit. He did this under the name Charles, also known as Chip Smith, which, like, Chip Smith sounds like one of the fakest names I've ever heard. Clark had been lured out by the FBI agent on the telephone, telling him that his boat was taking on water. 
because he had a boat in Maryland. So he was arrested as he left the apartment and was charged with kidnapping, assault, and battery. The child was found unharmed inside the apartment. So thank God, because I've been making fun of her name this entire time. And if she had died, that would have (laughs) been. Yes. No. Oh, so like when I was like, she's got enough. To, I said she's 18 or 19 years old. Oh, didn't, didn't. That part didn't register. <laughs> you were too stuck on like, how else can I make fun of this poor child's name? Yeah, exactly. Clark was charged with furnishing a false name to law enforcement following his arrest. His lawyer had argued that he did not do this to for dishonest purposes, which bullshit. Um, you had every intention on being a different person and giving a false name. Um, yeah, like, um, what What part of that is not dishonest? Everything about his entire life was dishonest. Dishonest. A hearing was requested by his attorney. Bail was revoked. On February 13th, 2009, Clark's attorney filed notice that they intended to use the insanity defense. <laughs> which that always goes well the trial was conducted in boston in june of 2009 um clark had the defense team told jurors that clark believed his daughter had communicated with him telepathically from london <laughs> where she and her mother moved after the doors, the doors <laughs> begging him to rescue her he's just They're just just grasping at fucking straws at this point. But also, like, I feel like he's saying that kind of thing to, like... Oh, yeah. Make the insanity plea, like, more usable for him. Absolutely. But, like, also, no. Like, he probably probably did have some, like, personality disorder or something, but he's definitely, like, a psychopath, but he wasn't, like, a... Yes. He, was, he knew the difference between right and wrong. Yes. So uh, two defense experts testified that um, he had been diagnosed with grandioso type um, narcissistic personality disorder and delusional disorder. Mm-hmm. One of the defense experts had testified also that um, Clark had told him that he was emotionally abused as a child by his father. Okay. Um, yeah. So that it, so that makes everything that happened. Oh, yeah. okay. Had also been diagnosed with mixed personality disorder, um, with narcissistic and antisocial traits. Felt that uh, he had exaggerated his symptoms of mental illness, and that Clark absolutely knew what was right and wrong, which is really what comes down to insanity was like at the time could you tell what was right from wrong like absolutely he knew what was right from wrong i think that this is surprising clark did not take the witness stand like like, such a liar yes but because he's such a liar i would assume and narcissistic i would assume he would kind of pull like a like a ted bundy in the sense of you know, like, trying to give his side of the story and, like, charm everyone into believing him. Yeah, but I bet his lawyer was, like, don't even... Because he because he was definitely going to go up there and immediately, like, perjure himself. Yeah, that's true. Because everything that he... Every part of his life was a lie. So, like, 
everything and anything he could have said would have been untrue and then he would have been perjuring himself like yeah so the jury convicted him for the kidnapping of his daughter as well as one count of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon um, for ordering his getaway driver to pull away even though his daughter's social worker was hanging on the car oh yep he was acquitted for a second assault charge um for giving the false name. The judge sentenced him to four to five years in state prison on the sure. kidnapping charge. Oh, concurrent three years on the assault charge. But here, here's that. That is just on the kidnapping. We haven't yeah. gotten into the murder that he also was found responsible for. So, like we said when I had mentioned before that, you know, in Los Angeles, he had been person... Being involved in the disappearance of a couple. That on March 15th, 2011, Clark was charged with the murder of Jonathan Sohus. The murder trial was held in March and April of 2013. He was convicted of first-degree murder on April 10th, 2013. The verdict included an enhancement for use of a deadly weapon because he had bludgeoned Jonathan Sohas to death. Clark was given the maximum of 27 years to life with a credit for one year served after finishing his sentence in Massachusetts. So he had to serve like the three to five years plus, four to five years for the kidnapping plus three years for the assault charges before he had to then serve the 27 years, but only one of those years applied to subtracting. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know that that sounds really confusing, but he was in there. For no, I, I, I understand because it's, they have to like do all the different charges and then add them on top of each other. And yeah. Yada, yada. I yada, get yada. it. Kind of. Um, <laughs> he had said that he wanted to insert his innocence, that I firmly believe that the victim's wife killed the victim in the murder case um but be that as it may once again i did not commit the crime of which i stand accused he appealed in 2015 to the 26 years he will be eligible for parole in september 2030 mm-hmm. which he'll be 39 years old at that time which is crazy to think of now because Only it's just 39? another nine no 69 oh i was like what? No, no, no. So I think he was a baby when he committed this crime. <laughs> yes, as a child with like a pacifier, that's like the deadly weapon he used. Uh, no, um, I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my god, like September 2030 is 10 years from now. Now. Oh god. Right. I like that information. <laughs> yeah, you're like, wow, my life just flashed before my fucking eyes. Yeah, it's already. Um, I'm having issues with the fact that it's 2020 now. I don't want to think about yeah. 20 being only 10 years away. That's not. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. I feel. Be in our mid 30s by then. So just. <laughs> yeah, I'll be 35. Don't do that to me. Got it. Um, okay. That's. There's like a whole bunch of like movies about it and nonfiction books and um, Georgia and Karen did an episode, um, episode 30, for My Favorite Murder. Deep, deep, deep seated issues, clearly. Um, so how I have, like, personal connection to this case was that when I was a teenager, 
at this point in time, like 2006 or seven. Um, I was like my mom and dad ran a party company where we would go to people's houses and um, like make it look like it was like a princess tea party. Yes, I had to wear a fluffy, like, princess dress. That was definitely, like, not my size, but oh well. (laughs) Shame. I'm just thinking back on shaming myself. Um, And so at one of the parties, um, Clark had also come by, and uh, Little Snook was one of the guests at the party that I had to help. He had come by and, like, like, picked Snooks up. It was so weird because once, like, his picture was, like, submitted, like, to the news, because I was living in Boston at the time with my family, um, that when the picture, like, went out of, like, this person was kidnapped, because, like, we recognized the name. They were labeled as one of the attendees. So my mom and I were like, oh, my God, like, that guy was at the party. Like, I know that person. (laughs) So... So, yeah, I'd like to say that, like, it was pretty cool, but not really, because now I'm like, oh, my God, I was standing near a murderer. A murderer, con man. Yeah. Liar. A liar. Yeah. Identity faker. Yeah. All that jazz. Yeah. So, you know, kind of famous hair flip. Yes, you're so famous. (laughs) It's your turn. You go. I'm so excited. First of all, you did a really good job. Thanks. Second of all, um, this story, so I wanted to do, because you told me you were doing, like, a more local story to you, I wanted to do, like, a more local story to me, so this is a murder that happened in New York, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a New York story, and it's fucking wild, so get ready. Okay, um, buckling up. And this is, so this is the murder of Arlene and Seymour Tankleft, and the story of Martin Tankleft. Okay, I don't think I know this. I, you may have heard of it once I, like, get into details, because it's very, okay. like, it's very bizarre, and it, it did get a lot of attention after um, years and years of... <clears throat> is this, like, in, like, recent years, or is this, like... In past. No, the murder happened in 1988, but you know, oh, okay. like other stuff happened in more recent years. So gotcha, gotcha. I'm gonna get into it. Cool. Um, so Martin Tancliffe was born on August 29, 1971, and to his wealthy parents, mm. Arlene and Seymour Tancliffe, and they lived in Belterre, Long Island, which is like a really ritzy, fancy neighborhood in Long Island. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, so his his parents were, like, extremely wealthy. His dad did, like, his dad did a lot of different things, um, which is very strange. Like, his dad was, like, a business partner in, in like, a bagel store. Hell, yeah. And then also was, like, also, like, worked with the police. Um, like they said, he was a commissioner for the Beltair Constabulary. So Which, he was a commissioner and worked in a bagel shop? He didn't work in a bagel shop. He owned a bagel shop. Okay, that's like the most New York thing I feel like I could have ever heard. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
okay. okay. So he was like a business guy, but also was like a higher up in like he worked with the police. So the police okay. like knew the family. So <clears throat> so around six a.m. Oh, and most of the most of the information I got is from a report done by the New York New York State Commission of Investigation Ooh. because there was a comprehensive report done into how the police handled it. Um, and mm. see why. Yeah. So I'm okay. Um, around 6 a.m. on September 7th, 1988, 17-year-old Martin Tankleff, and he, he went by Marty. Um, he woke up for the first day of his senior year of high school to discover his parents, Arlene and Seymour Tankleff, stabbed and bludgeoned. Oh, shit. His, his mom was dead, but his... Yeah. <laughs> his mom was dead, but his father was unconscious and still alive. Um, so Martin called 911. And he started performing CPR. And the the police and the ambulance arrived on the scene within, like, 20 minutes. So wow. the police report that upon arriving at the scene, they saw Marty uh, pacing back and forth in front of his house. So this is one cop's account of, like, when he pulled up what he saw. Yeah. So and he, this cop in particular knew the family really well. So okay. he, he, like, called Marty over, was like, come sit sit in my car and like talk to me for a minute and he said that Marty immediately said that the murderer must have been uh Jerry Stewerman who was his father's business partner in the bagel business um and sorry said, I can't get over that <laughs> yeah <laughs> no it's fine so he said he must have been the one to do it because um Jerry Stewerman owed his father uh like five hundred thousand dollars Mm. and also they the parents had had some friends over the night before for like a card game night yeah. for some reason and Jerry Stewerman was the last person to leave the house so he was the last person to leave the house and he left at like three o'clock in the morning so Marty was immediately like well it must have been him and because he said like, there was beef between Jerry and Seymour and so Marty said like oh my my mom warns me that this might happen yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm already like, okay, how are you deflect? Like, you are clearly deflecting. Yes. So then the cop <laughs> says that um, he asked him if he could, like, because the dad was still unconscious, not dead. So the cop asked him, like, okay, so if your dad wakes up, is he going to be able to corroborate that story and say that it was Jerry Sewerman that like attacked him mm -hmm. and the cop that Marty's response immediately was like his demeanor changed and his eyes got wide and he got like quiet so oh, he didn't realize his dad was still alive huh because he didn't realize that his dad was still alive no he knew that the dad was still alive but like the okay. cop just in the possibility of like the dad waking up mm. the cops also noticed that Marty was behaving in a really like strange way he was they, they said he seemed kind of calm and unemotional. He, like, wasn't really showing much. He wasn't really in distress. Like, he was just kind of, like, calm about the whole situation. Mm. So they were immediately suspicious of him and asked to take him in for questioning. And keep in mind, he's 17 years old. So, like, I don't know if you're under the age of 18, if they can, like, take you in for questioning legally without a 
adult. So they take him in for questioning the police that day. And they said that Marty just kind of like talks about different things. He talks about his friends, his car, like some girl that he had a crush on, um, his dad's business interests. He was just kind of like chit-chatting with them, basically making small talk. And they said, again, he was like calm, really unemotional. And that during interrogation, he never once asked the police how his dad was doing, even though like he knew his dad was still alive. I was just thinking like, I'm sorry, but if my if I woke up and went to my parents' room and found both my parents like stabbed and my mom died and my dad like was in the hospital and I went through like this traumatic thing and like don't get me wrong, like we all like cope with death and like traumatic events differently, but I would assume that like I probably wouldn't want to talk a lot. Like, I would probably, I feel like most people would, like, shut down and, like, not talk about things like, oh, like, my crush and this and that. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, what can I do to help? Yeah, and also, like, what kind of, like, it's just, it's just really bizarre. Like, this, yeah, I understand that, like, people act differently when, like, traumatic things happen to them, but Mm -hmm. his his behavior was just really bizarre to the police. Yeah. So they were immediately suspicious of him. Especially um, the 17 year old. You're still so young and you rely on your parents for so much. You would think that that would be more like scary, you yeah. know, that you would feel more helpless because you're without the people who have been taking care of you your whole life. Yeah. And you might be scared for like your own life. Why was it that I was left alone and my parents were the ones who were stabbed and I wasn't? Yeah, exactly. And also, like, so Jerry, or not Jerry, Marty said that he was asleep through the entire night. He didn't wake up. He didn't hear anything, like, commotion in the house, but... Yeah, especially someone screaming. Yeah, exactly. But also, like, I don't know, they lived in a pretty big house, so maybe, Mm. maybe this place was different. Whatever. The police decide to do something while they are interrogating him which is they decide to lie to him Mm. Um, so they pretend that they're taking a phone call they step out they come back in and they say oh we just got a call from the hospital your dad woke up and he said that it was you oh that wasn't true yeah that was not true his dad was his dad was still unconscious his dad never regained consciousness and his dad ended up dying uh a few weeks later in the hospital um, so having sad. never, yeah, so like there was never any, I was never able to account yeah. what happened. So Marty responded with that information by saying, Well, if you, if he's saying it's me, it's just because I'm the last person he, because uh, one who found him or whatever. Oh, okay. Please continue to interrogate him. They're like, But why would he say that? You know, and they put a lot of pressure on him. And so Marty starts to question himself and he says, well, I don't remember doing it, but maybe I blacked out and did it. There's something wrong with me and I blacked out and I killed my parents. So through that information, the police are able to get Marty to write a confession. She writes a confession, does not sign it. According to Marty, he immediately recanted his confession. This report from the uh, Commission of Investigation says that they were not able to find proof that he immediately recanted the confession. Gotcha. Okay. So, or, no, verbal and unsigned. It was written by the police, but it was a verbal confession. 
and then he did not sign it. So he said that he They didn't the even verb. Sorry, they didn't even record it? No, he after he gave the verbal um confession, he they said he gave permission for them to record him after that. So they recorded him after his confession and like his behavior afterwards, which was like he called his sister and stuff. I'll I will get to that in a second, but there's a sister involved with this. Yeah, he had an older sister, but she didn't live there. She was older and like married, and she was a half sister. Um, oh, gotcha. So she she was living with her husband and and wasn't like uh, in the house when that happened. She's not like super important to the story, but okay. So he said in his confession that he attacked his mother first. And that he came at her with a barbell and he struck her four or five times in the head and then used a knife to cut her throat and then stabbed her. And so this was before, like, all his confession was before the autopsy was done. Yeah. And later, when the autopsy was completed on the mother, it was found that she died by having her throat cut and that she had multiple blunt force injuries. Trauma her head consistent with being hit with a barbell so okay so he knew so in his confession he said exactly how she died um exactly how she was attacked which again like if he didn't actually do it how would he know that how would he know because the police didn't know either at that time what exactly her cause of death was or what the manner of her death was they just knew that they had been stabbed and hit with something. They had knives from the scene, but they hadn't, like, they didn't have the whole story. So yeah. it's just odd that he knew exactly how that happened. I don't know. I'm uh, also sitting here trying to give CPR to his dad when he finds those things. Like, he would be able to see, like, blood coming out of his mother's neck and the barbell on the ground, correct? Yeah, potentially. And also, like, the police could have pieced that information together and coerced him into saying oh, that yeah. stuff, too. I don't know. It's it's a very, like, this is a very confusing, yeah. complicated story because there isn't a real answer. How, how are other ways someone could have gotten this information? Because, like, as you can see, like, he's not making himself look good. But also, the cops fucking up and whatnot you know there's both sides so I'm just trying to look at it as best as I can but yes keep going yes so after after he like verbalized his confession he agreed to be recorded and then while he was being recorded that was when he called his sister and said oh I need psychiatric help I'm so sorry I did this and so Marty claims that the police coerced him into saying that to his sister that the police told him before they filmed him like you need to call your sister and tell her you're sorry and tell her you need help. Yeah. And Marty also claims that during the interrogation, one of the detectives choked him. He claims that, that they were doing like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. So one yeah. of them was really nice. And then the other guy was like really mean and choked him and like tried to hurt him. And that was how they coerced him into a confession. They like intimidating him into confessing. So while they were filming him, restating his confession, his lawyer became aware of what was going on and came in contact with the police and ended the interrogation. So it says in the report that, quote, several newspaper articles have been quoted saying that Tankliff immediately recanted his confession 
The commission has found no evidence to support that claim. There's no evidence that he did immediately say, I was coerced into this confession. Potentially, that was what happened after his lawyer spoke to him. You know what I mean? Yeah, gotcha. He said that the reason why he called his sister and said that to her is because they made him. So he is taken into custody, charged with the murder of his parents, put to trial. And during the trial, his defense continues to argue that he was coerced into the confession, that the confession is invalid because he didn't sign it, and that he was intimidated. He, you know, he's 17, he's a minor technically, and he's being hurt by the police and confused and all this stuff. The other argument from the defense was that Jerry Stewerman, if you recall, the mm-hmm. business partner in the bagel the bagel business. Yes, was, the bagels. <laughs> was also a uh, valid suspect. So yeah. Marty testifies Seymour gave Jerry Stewerman $500,000 to build a house in exchange for a uh, part in his bagel store. Okay. Which is just really fucking weird. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's weird. And then Jerry Stewerman, instead of like building a house, he opened another store and never paid Ooh, back money. So, like, like another bagel store? Another bagel store? No, I think this one was like a pizza place because oh, okay. so of course. Because <laughs> there's not like a million other pizza places in New York. But again, just like the two things of New York, pizza and yeah. <laughs> They were arguing that Jerry Stewerman had the motive to kill the parents because he owed them a lot of money. Marty said that he believed that Jerry Stewerman had hired two people to kill his parents, but there wasn't any proof of that. Anyway, his defense did not work. He was convicted of, because his, at this point, this was, trial lasted nine weeks. At this point, his father was already dead, so he was charged with two murders, and he was sentenced to two concurrent 25-year-to-life sentences. So basically, he was getting 50 years to life, going to be jail for the rest of his life, and pretty quickly pretty immediately his lawyer feel the conviction try to get it overturned um they were writing letters to supreme court to the da's office things like that their appeals were denied several times so there was like a million different appeals that they did which is where this gets like super confusing they initially tried to get a new trial so they were like, can we get a retrial because there was new evidence of that Jerry Stewerman had connection to criminals that could have potentially murdered the parents. So Jerry Stewerman's son was mm-hmm. selling cocaine out of the bagel shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Type of cream cheese they were looking for. Yeah, exactly. Had like some extra cream cheese on the side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, <laughs> sniff, sniff. So his son was a criminal. And his son, obviously, as he was a criminal, knew a lot of other criminals. And no, Marty Tankliff family and friends have a website for him where they talk about the reports and they talk about the potential people who had killed the parents. And he said that all leads led back to the business partner, son, the okay. son's in Enforcer had bragged over the years about having participated in the murder. Through the drug enforcer's arrest records, the investigator found an accomplice who admitted to having been the getaway driver on the night of the murder. So, mm. according to this Marty Tankless like personal website, there was dozens of statements from people saying that these two guys um, who were related to like knew the son. Because he was a cocaine dealer, admitted that they were a part of the whole thing. 
So they admitted that they had, that Jerry Stewartman had hired them to kill the parents and that they broke in in the middle of the night, killed them, and then one guy was the getaway driver. This information I couldn't find anywhere else. Like, I couldn't find it. The report took place, like, after all of that information had come to light, but the report was mostly supposed to be focused on if the police acted in an ethical way. It wasn't mentioned, but according to their website, that happened. Yeah. And they filed for a retrial because of the new evidence. That motion was denied. And that was in 2004. They also discovered later that the Suffolk County DA had conflict of interest in relation to these murders as well. Uh, so five years before the Tankliff murders, the DA had represented the business partner's son for oh, the cocaine. Oh, <laughs> no. So he was first the DA who persecuted, um, who brought these charges against Marty, had known the business partner's family and had represented the son in court for his so- cocaine. So that, then he that, was biased. Yeah, he was definitely biased. That's definitely a conflict of interest. He used himself that time. Yeah, that's dumb on his part. In his whole trial. So that in itself is like a little suspect. What's going yeah. on here? Because he has connections. He also, during the time of the trial and the murders, the county police were under investigation for corruption Okay. Uh, at the time. And this was unrelated to this charge, but they were under investigation. So the people who are on Marty Penko's side say that they were already under investigation for corruption. So like they could have been corrupt cop, but the Department of Investigation for State of New York said that, well, the initial investigation about corruption found that the police force was not corrupt. So that doesn't have any bearing on how they handled this case. Wow. That's horrible, perfect mishmash of just, like, corruption and, like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it's just so, there's just so much drama that's incorporated with nothing can ever be known. I know that sent the son to jail, but who can you really trust in that? Because both sides sides are messed up. Exactly, because the son, he was found guilty. There was definitely enough circumstantial evidence along with doing all of this mildly shady shit. (laughs) <laughs> just mildly like well it's, it's not even known if they were because they weren't yeah. found corrupt right it's just so bizarre it's yeah just such a bizarre case um after they denied his motion for a new trial in 2000 uh-huh. he appealed that decision um upon appealing that decision the new york what's it called what what what, what is it called the the the, the big higher up judges Supreme Court? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) After he like filed this appeal, the New York Supreme Court determined that because of the like conflict of interest stuff with the DA and like all of this other shit and like all this new evidence that they said, okay, we can grant you um, a new trial. We're dropping all the charges. So the decision was made to drop all the charges against him to remove that from his record that he's no longer a convicted murderer and so after doing that because he was granted the possibility of a retrial it was up to then the DA to decide if they were going to retry him or not so the DA was the same DA the same guy who had the connections and so this time the DA was like I have a conflict of interest (laughs) to make this decision so he excused himself from the, that decision being made. 
and the so there was somebody else appointed to make that decision the other person decided not to pursue charges against him again and not to go through with a retrial so that Hmm. meant marty was a free man and upon becoming a free man oh no uh, oh no no i mean it doesn't upon becoming a free man marty went to law school he became a lawyer and now currently a lawyer for the innocence project oh the way you set that up i was like oh god what did he do no, I just think it's really interesting. He became a lawyer for the Innocence Project, so his job now is to try and defend people who are believed to be wrongfully convicted of crimes. Oh, that's um, awesome. And that's interesting that that's, I mean, like, it makes sense that that's the direction he chose to go with his life after getting out. Like, he owes a lot of his life to the Innocence Project because the his lawyers were from the Innocence Project. Yeah. Most of his team of lawyers, and he had, like, a team based out of, like, 20 legal representatives that yeah. were working on the case because there was so much shady shit going on. Oh, also, I forgot to mention that oh, no. Jer- so Jerry Stewerman was also never charged with the, the crime and never tried. Um, so there's no, like, this is now, like, a cold case. Like, there's so there's no, no conclusion to it, really. There's no conclusion to this. However, this is some interesting fact about Jerry Stewerman. After the murders happened and while the trial was going on, the very first trial, Jerry Stewerman faked his own death yes. and fled from New York to California. Oh my god, and he was Clark Rockefeller the whole time! The whole time! <laughs> so the police were able to, dis- like, the police discovered his car had been, like, abandoned and they were like, okay, he's missing. And then his daughter filed a missing persons report. They were able to eventually trace him back to California, where the police then went to California and convinced Jerry Stewerman to come back to New York because they were like, dude, this doesn't look good for you. (laughs) You just faked your own death when you could have been a murderer. He claimed that his reasoning behind faking his own death and like trying to run away wasn't because he like committed the murders, but it was because he had been accused of committing the murders. And his life was now ruined. He was in, like, tons of debt. He had no... His business was destroyed because it was just a cocaine front. He had nothing... Like, he had nothing left in his life. Yeah. And, and that makes sense to me, honestly. But also, he definitely could have run away because he was... Because he killed these people. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I'm also thinking, like, just change your name. How... Like, he just left his car? That's it? Let me see if I can find the details of it in the report. Because there is a really interesting... The, but, the story that they tell of this is really interesting. Did, was his daughter in on it that she had to report that he was a missing person or was like, how did they find him in California? Unless he like forgot to tell his daughter, hey, I'm moving to California. I'm dead now. Don't go look at for so, me. And like the, okay, so the the police did interview Jerry Stewerman after the murders, but... Mm-hmm. The police stated, oh, we interviewed him and we had no reason to believe he was the murderer. They just didn't pursue that. How are you so like, the, sure? They just like, went and talked to him twice and then they were like, nah, he's not a suspect. So like very, very odd that they were just, no, we talked to him. We believe him. Instead of being like, he owed this man $500,000. That's yeah. a reason why you could kill somebody. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they just decided like not to go with it. Okay, so one week after the murders, uh, Stewerman's car was found with its engine running and the keys in the ignition behind a restaurant in Hapeg, New York. Uh, evidence at that time, 
SCPD did not believe Stearman had been harmed and attempted to locate him. On September 15th, his daughter filed a missing persons report. The detectives subsequently learned that Stearman was in California. So they don't even say how they discovered it, but... I'm sorry, then, but if you're going to fake your own death, don't you think put some blood on the car, like push the car off a cliff? I'm uh, thinking of just so many it. other ways. He just okay. left it in the parking lot. So they went to, like, he didn't try that hard. Yeah, he did. They flew to California. They interviewed him and they said they learned he was besieged with family and business problems. Stewartman told them that his life was in ruins and the fact that Tankliff had accused him of murdering his parents as well as the public's perception that he was involved in the murders, had overwhelmed him. So he believed that he could start his life over again if he ran away. So then during the trial, Jerry Stewartman was called as a witness. He was interrogated, basically trying to say, like, it could have been him. He ran away. Death, like, this is really suspicious, but the jury still found Marty guilty. Mm. Basically, that's that's essentially the whole story. Marty is... um, He's living his life now. I believe he's married and has a child. He also sued and successfully won millions of dollars um, from Suffolk County. Oh, for so the police department? Yeah, from the police department for the way he was treated and for his wrongful conviction. So mm-hmm. he won more than $3 million in 2014 to settle his wrongful conviction law. His statement at the, when he sued the county was, I'm looking forward to my federal trial where I hope to expose the misconduct that caused my wrongful conviction. So that does not happen to anybody else. I was wrongfully treated, da da da. But the Department of Investigation, when they did the investigation, their conclusion was there's no evidence of misconduct on part mm. of the police. So they basically said, no, this isn't the police's fault. And that's that. Like the police mm. didn't do anything wrong in this situation. Oh. Which is just interesting. So, like, is this a whole cover up for the police being like corrupt as fuck? It's a little suspect that they were, you know, investigated for corruption now twice. Seems like a crazy coincidence that they were being investigated for corruption at the same time when they arrested this kid and interrogated him and got a confession out of him that wasn't recorded. Yeah. And he didn't sign anything. Just seems super suspect. But at the same time, like Marty says he slept through the entire thing because he slept through his parents getting murdered. But then when he gives his confession, gives detailed accounts of how his parents died when that wasn't even known at the time. Just a very unusual. It's a very peculiar. I don't know who I think did it, but this story was so interesting when I found it. I was like, holy shit. And I read this report. It's like 20 pages long. Read the entire thing. I was like, oh my God, this is so fascinating. Like what? Like <laughs> How did this happen? Honestly, it, it is super interesting. And I've never heard of this. So that was news to me. Good job with your research, dude. I will, I feel like you did like so much more research than I did. I had a lot of research that I that like was pers- provided to me because I had oh, this gotcha. entire report that was so thorough and in-depth. Really, I'm just summarizing that and then a couple of articles and then stuff from his blog, which you can go on the website. Nice. It's just Marty, it's just Marty Tencliffe thought org I think nice. yeah martintankless.org and you can read like his whole story there's a blog there's an online forum they sell merchandise hell yeah so, <laughs> you know <there's> <laughs> just a lot of casual bizarre stuff so that was that was really cool so um 
I feel like before we leave, maybe we should something that we're excited about in the next, like something, a happy thought. Because I know that this one wasn't like that bad, but I'm sure that the next one might not be so better. It can, it, you know, it'll probably go downhill from here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like terribly, horribly graphic murders, you know. Yeah, exactly. Or conspiracies or whatever. I'm a little surprised. I thought you were going to do, like, the Denver airport. So, thought about doing it because <laughs> I that I listened to called Web Crawlers. They just did an episode about the Denver airport. And I was like, oh, do I want to? But I'm going to save that for another day. Okay, sounds good, sounds good. What is a positive thing for you this week or something that, like, made you happy? Well, something that I'm looking forward to is after this, I'm going to go and make myself some French toast. (laughs) I love that it's like food motivated. I'm very food motivated. That's my whole life. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to make myself some French toast, so I'm excited about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm recovering from this cold, so looking forward to feeling feeling 100% better. With my girlfriend, we're going to the... New York Winter Lantern Festival, which is on Saturn. Yeah. So that's on Saturn Island. We're going to that tonight. That's going to be super fun. Um, Jelly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My, I'm trying to think now. I'm like, oh God, what is like my happy? I start work tomorrow again from the holiday. So I'm going to enjoy my day trying to snuggle with my cat and him shoving me away with his paws Um, (laughs) and uh, maybe try to find something to watch um yeah I'm not like maybe like uh just finish the other half of my bagel that's been sitting here for this whole episode uh so yeah you know um just also food motivated. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, before we also go, so I made a Gmail account called Crimes While Caffeinated. So feel free to send in personal stories or ideas of topics that you want Abby and I to cover. Um, any suggestions is always appreciated. There's so many and Um, I definitely know that sometimes I get like choice paralysis where I just like, there's too many things that I want to talk about, that I have no idea how to narrow it down. So feel free to do that. And then, um, there'll be an Instagram page coming soon. And, and, and the the website, right? There's a website. Yes. Well, you can, uh, we also have a, a page on, what's it called? We have a page on Anchor, so there's that, Um, and I'm sure more will come, so don't forget to check out Instagram for some updates and stuff like that. Yeah, and don't forget to rate and subscribe. And that's that. Yeah! Thanks. We did it! it Woo! We did it! Now we just gotta keep this up! Woo! Woo! And we gotta edit this. Yes, and edit it. But that's going to be a... That's going to be a bitch. (laughs)